Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and on today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Award-winning journalist Marina Hyde is going to join us. She's got a new book out this week. It's called What Just Happened. And it reflects on her writings over the last number of years and another incredible couple of weeks in UK politics. Here at home this week, the government published a master plan to overhaul on board Planola. But exactly how does the agency work and who are the people who are making the big decisions about the pace of building our houses and all of our key infrastructure here in Ireland? Mick Clifford of the Irish Examiner is going to join me to explain all. And finally, staff retention has become a significant issue for lots of employers, putting the workforce in the driving seat for the first time. We're going to chat to an industry expert about what's happening and the best approach to take to keep your staff on side and in situ. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Well, we're going to start today with that issue of staff retention. It's almost a cliche, I guess, at this stage to say that the pandemic has changed the working landscape for us all. But the war for talent that has emerged as a byproduct of that is certainly raging and it's speeding up. And so, too, are salaries. That's one of the findings of the annual CIPD Ireland IRN Pay and Employment Practice Survey, which was published earlier this week. It covers a wide range of topics relating to the private sector uh, pay issue, including pay pressures, progressive benefits like domestic violence payments and also uh, the remote working allowance issue. I'm joined now by Director of CIPD um, Ireland, who is Mary Connaughton. Hello, Mary. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Mandy. So first up, Mary, it's very clear from this survey that companies are really, really struggling to retain their staff, certainly in the private sector. Can you talk us through some of your findings? Well, the findings indicate that the rationale behind some of the pay increases include staff retention and skill shortages. But inflation is also one of the key considerations Mm. in terms of how employers have responded. So what we found in relation to pay was over the last 12 months, um, 72% of employers implemented a pay rise. And in general, that that averaged out at 4.6% of base pay which is a much higher pay level increase than we would have seen in recent years. We found that two in five employers paid more than they had expected. So when they had planned forward for their budget 12 months ago, they hadn't expected to be paying this level of increase. So they have had to respond to the market in terms of both the level of inflation and the pressure on um, employee retention. In relation then to next year, we asked about what employers were planning and we found that 51% are planning to give increases in the next 12 months. But there is 30% out there who haven't yet made a decision and that's common when you ask about what are people expecting to do in the next 12 months. The level of pay increase we expect there is about 3.5%. And again, a, a high projection in normal circumstances. So again, reacting to both the tight labour market and the level of inflation. Mm. What's interesting about the level of these pay increases is how similar they are to the public sector deal that's going through at the moment. 
So, yeah, one of the figures that jumped out at me was that 40% figure uh, higher than expected pay rises for 2002. That's hardly sustainable for the private sector who themselves, a lot of them will be dealing with the the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, the rising costs. Um, You know, is that level of increase expected for next year or even sustainable? Well, within that, you will have a band of different levels of payment and some companies are have are in a position where they can pay. But what we did find was there is a dependency on performance and profitability in those figures. So it's not that it's automatically going to come through if the capacity to pay is reduced. So there isn't any guarantee about it. We're just talking about what are you predicting for mm. the next 12 months. So it's good to see so many are projecting a pay increase, but they have told us that it is dependent on profitability slash performance. Now, as well as the growth that you've talked about in these results, you're also seeing growth of retention payments. Can you talk us through that, please? Yeah, that was an interesting one. And we asked about whether employers were willing to offer a counter offer when an employee said that they were going to leave. And what we found was 50% said they would consider making a retention payment. Sometimes that's a bonus. Sometimes that's a pay increase. Now, we did ask this question going back two or three years ago, and we found that about 30% would consider it. So it's quite a big increase Mm. to see that. And I think the other thing we found was that quite a number of organisations are planning to increase their level of employees over the next year. So that also means that as they grow, they have to retain the people they have because they're still struggling to recruit the right skills into the organisation. It certainly does seem to have tipped in favour of the employee. The whole kind of hiring uh, talent landscape is, 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 is certainly kind of rebalancing in a, in a different way. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Mary Connaughton, who is Director of CIPD Ireland. Mary, just one of the other things I, I wanted to pick up on was this issue of non-pay benefits. Um, You said in your survey that you've also seen a rise in those. Can you tell me a bit about what those might be? Is it offering spa days or what type of incentives are you seeing uh, in terms of non-pay benefits? Um, Well, certainly we asked about what their plans were around it and a third said they were planning to increase non-pay benefits. What we generally found in the survey was that a lot of companies are paying pension contributions, paid sick leave, an extra annual leave. And quite a number are doing a top-up payments, which is um, for maternity and paternity leave, um, which is a payment on top of the state benefit that somebody on maternity or paternity leave may be getting. The other question we asked was around what we call more progressive and some of them would be family-friendly. And here we found that... um, In relation to implementing policies, we found that a small number of companies were implementing policies on domestic abuse, leave, infertility, menopause, but like that would be less than 10%. But there was another um, 25% in general, which were considering this and keen to implement it. Yeah, IBEC had some interesting comments about that support for business on the victims of domestic violence. Can you talk us through what's proposed on that from the government's perspective? So what the government is proposing that a 
person who is a victim of domestic abuse or at risk of domestic abuse would have an entitlement of up to five days leave for in relation to their domestic abuse. Now, we think that um, this is something that in practice we want few people to need and for those who do need it, it's a very supportive, compassionate measure. And what we find is really important is that organisations roll out a policy and talk about it. So somebody who is suffering knows that there is an environment where they can come forward because often they are too quiet. Now, we're not recommending that employers become experts and try to support them directly, but rather that they are able to point them in the direction of the agencies that can provide that level of support. So um, it's five days leave and we don't think that's unreasonable in the circumstances because in a sense it's a form of compassionate leave. In a more general sense, Mary, are you finding that companies are getting better at handling, let's say, the life problems that employees might have, like the issue of bereavement, miscarriage or even that issue of domestic violence? Is it sort of being built into the fabric uh, of a company in a better way than maybe it had been before? We're certainly seeing it's getting a lot more visibility. I think what's happening is that some large employers are leading the way and implementing these sorts of policies and are getting quite a bit of positive publicity around it. When you talk to small employers and even good-sized employers, you will find that they will respond to a particular employee in a particular set of circumstances in a sensitive manner. But they won't necessarily have put a policy in place um, because you could end up with a lot of policies. Now, interestingly, on miscarriage, we found that 22% of organisations have a policy on miscarriage and a similar number are considering it. So it's the one that's more visible than things like infertility, menopause and domestic abuse. Outside of those pay issues, the survey looked at some other interesting things uh, in terms of remote working. How many companies um, are actually paying the remote working allowance, did you find? We found that only 9% Quite small, isn't it? I, I was quite surprised at how low that figure was. Were you? Um, yes, and it wasn't much different if you go back before the pandemic. Mm. I think it was 4 or 5%. But what's happened... What has happened in the interim is that the government have improved the tax relief for somebody around their electricity, um, heat and broadband expenses. And that will come in from January next year where employees can pay more back. The issue around bringing it in in a company is if you have employees who are working at home and you have others who are working on site, mm it could be seen as being divisive because you're giving one group a benefit that you're not giving to the other. And also, from a payment perspective, you have to track every day that the employee is at home. And currently what we're finding is that most organisations are working towards operating in a more hybrid environment. And hence, the administration and tracking the paperwork around this will be more complicated. What exactly is the remote working allowance? Like how much could an employee get from it? What it is, is is um, 320 a day for every day that the person works remotely. And that can be paid without any tax implication. There's no PRSI, no PAYE and no USC associated with that. 
So in a sense, it's a person gets the full value of that 320. And there is an opportunity that more employers could say, well, actually, in the current straightened environment, we will look at paying that. And because there's no tax, you know, there's no other deductions, well, hence, people will get full value from that amount. Yeah, maybe. I heard Leo Varadkar talking about uh, remote working uh, and again, uh, not not necessarily in a very positive way during the week. I just get this sense that there's more frustration on the side of business about getting people back into the office space. Do you, Are you finding that in your surveys, in your, in your kind of day-to-day business that companies want employees to move back quicker than maybe they want to? Um, it's actually quite a complicated environment. First, you have to remember that really we're only practicing this or trying to implement it for the last six months in Ireland mm. because we were we had locked down down so frequently um, over the last couple of years, and companies are gradually trying to encourage people to come back. Now, some have adopted policies whereby people can work remotely if they choose, but what's coming through is that for collaboration purposes, for keeping people up to date, for social connection and mental health for the culture of the organization they do need to have people on site so a number of companies would be expecting people to be on site maybe two days a week but now they're having to move towards a situation where there's agreed anchor days or connection days so you end up with the team who are all in on the same day or maybe the team one team that works closely with another team they're both in the same day so there's a whole level of collaboration and cooperation that has to be managed around this that wasn't there before. And many companies are just teasing their way through it. Now, there's quite a lot of consultation happening. We're hearing a lot of surveys of employees. What do they want? Our HR practices survey found that in general, employers expected that employees would end up on site either two or three days a week. But companies who have gone in two days, you know, quite successfully Mm. and have tried to up that to three days have run into some difficulty. There seems to be some kind of psychological barrier to shift from two days to three days. Yeah, I'm certainly hearing that from a lot of businesses. Um, Finally, Mary, and just very briefly, I wanted to pick your brains on looking at this from an employee's perspective. Just we're in a very difficult cost of living crisis, the fears all around of potential recessions, maybe not here in Ireland, but across Europe. Um, Is there no sense that employees might want a bit of stability now, all this moving around? Uh, Is there any kind of uh, desire from employees to seek a bit more kind of, you know, stable employment that have, have longer contracts or is there still that mass? fluidity in the market that is driving this war for talent? Any sign to an end to that? Um, Within the Irish marketplace, because of our level of growth, we're not seeing that that stabilising. I mean, we are hearing that some large companies may not be recruiting to the level that they would have recruited in the past. We're certainly not here about any downsizing. So that gives employees a level of security that they, if they move jobs, they would be moving to another relatively secure job, that level of insecurity isn't there. Okay. And I think what it is to is partly looking at the ways of working. What we found in our work earlier in the year was that well, we don't call it the great resignation, we call it the great reevaluation. And certainly getting the balance between work and home and work and life is much more important to people. The parameters around that have changed for all levels of people in organizations. 
So that's what's driving a number of decisions. We've also seen that people are more likely to move in and out of the labour market. It was an interesting figure that came through based on analysis of CSO figures that between the end of 2019 and the end of 2021, much more people were leaving and coming back, doing things like studying, doing retiring, and taking time out for parenting. So there's a lot more fluidity happening in general. Okay, Mary, thank you very much for your insights today. That was Mary Connaughton uh, from the CIPD Ireland. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, it's Mick Clifford on what's happening at Onboard Planola. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, this week, the Cabinet approved a plan to expand the board and introduce new measures at Onboard Planola. It's all done to try and help strengthen oversights against claims of conflicts of interest. So I'm joined now by Mick Clifford of the Irish Examiner, who's been following this story. Mick, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on News Talk. Thanks, Mandy. Mick, just start off by telling us what prompted this week's action plan from government. Well, I suppose it all goes back to around last March when it was first revealed that there was an issue. The first media outlet to do that was the Ditch website, where they uh, pointed out on the basis of files that the, the deputy chair of the board, Paul Hyde, had a conflict of interest in relation to decisions he made. Uh, that was the start of it. It effectively pulled a thread. There were other conflicts of interest uncovered. We ran a number of stories in the Examiner, particularly Keenan Brennan, my colleague, in relation to um, a huge number of occasions, for example, when decisions were made by two-person mm. boards and the same two people. Now, it's supposed to be kind of exceptional circumstances that it's two-person boards at all. And crucially, in a huge number of cases where telecommunication masks were at issue. Uh, the inspector's report was overruled. Now, the the board members are not obliged to go by an inspector's report, but generally speaking, only in about ten percent of cases would they would they deviate from it. Yet in these instances, it appeared that in the vast majority of cases they were doing so. So you've an awful lot of issues there, which showed, I suppose, in the first interest that. controls were loose Mm. and as well it would appear that certainly the board was not functioning as it was meant to. Yeah, one of the statements made when the government were announcing their plan was by Leo Varadkar. He said on board Planola were quite out of date in terms of their procedures and needed reform. But it kind of struck me that they've been in government for 12 years and I wonder if this particular issue had not come to light. Do you think anything would be changing? No, absolutely not. Not only that, as you said, they're in government 12 years. In 2016, there was an extensive review of the operation of Board Planola. Uh, it made 100 recommendations. Mm. Now, it came out last week, they said about 50 of those have been implemented or partially implemented. By my reckoning, only about 33, I think, were actually implemented. So you, even there, you have a review and they don't fully go after it and implement it, particularly in terms of the, the big ticket aspects to the whole thing. And as you say, if it hadn't come out about this, they wouldn't have done either. It is really a case of, as we know, Mandy, like if you go back to the the economic collapse and and the recession, a huge number of institutions came tumbling down and confidence did in them and all that sort of thing. Board Planola was somehow insulated from that. 
Bor Planola sailed through it. And, and some people said that during the building boom, they, they'd actually done very well in terms of, of the uh, stopping various excesses. So it would seem that the eye was taken off the ball in terms of Bor Planola and they were left to their own devices. Mm. And ultimately, which is inevitable, as you well know, when you do that, something's going to go wrong sometime. And quite obviously, things were going wrong here for at least the last two or three years, according to everything that has come out. Yeah, like obviously when it comes to planning, we demand and rightly so transparency from politicians after everything that we've gone through um, and also from business. Maybe it's time now to, to relook at the agency so that they too can be held to account. Um, but like on board Planola, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day and she said, wait, who are they? Like who's on the board of Onboard Planola and how did they become such a monolith? So can you just talk us through the type of people who might be on the board and, and kind of who runs the show there? Yeah, that's an interesting aspect in itself. First of all, people here on board Planola, and you know, I certainly did in recent years, would think that people who are on the board, it's a bit like a corporate board where it's kind of a part-time job mm. as a board member. And it's not that at all. It's actually a full-time job, five-year term that is very often renewed. Uh, there's currently 10 people on the board. They would sit for various cases in sub-boards of three generally, sometimes two, the odd occasion five. And they do get through over 3,000 cases a year. Now, when you ask who they are, that's a very interesting question too, because one of the issues that has arisen is that of late, the board has become very technocratic mm. in that appointees tend to be from a planning or architectural background. In its original design, when it came into being in 1977, it was brought in to take away, believe it or not, Mandy, prior to 1977, the Minister for the Environment, our, our predecessor to the Environment, made decisions on planning appeals. I mean, that when you, when you think of it now, that was a crazy scenario. So, Borpenol was set up to avoid that. But it was supposed to reflect society. So, for example, the first chairman was a High Court judge. Now, it's been a long time since a chair has been a judge or anybody of that stature in the board. Mm. One of the first appointees was a man who was effective. He, he delivered bread for a living. Now, you know, people made some something of that. They said he happened to be a political appointee. But the other side of that coin was he was also somebody who was drawn from society in general and therefore reflected society. He wasn't a, a technocrat or somebody whose whole um, life was, was, was engaged in planning and therefore capable of avoiding groupthink. Mm. But that kind of groupthink appears to have crept in in the, in the last decade anyway, when the vast majority of appointments, if not all of them, came strictly from a planning background. And that's an issue in itself. The other issue is how they're um, appointed. And that's done by a nomination process. There's about between 20 and 30 civic and professional bodies. They all make nominations on a rotational basis. So if I wanted to be on the board, I'd get onto one of these bodies. For instance, someone like Macron Affirma, perhaps, or, or the Irish Engineers Institute, or ICTU. And, you know, you'd say, look, I'd like to be on that. And they might run through and see wh whether they think you're suitable. And then when a nomination comes up, they're asked and they put forward somebody's name as a, a nomination. However, the final decision is still the minister's. So there's a political element to it as well. There's going to be a lot of reform in that area in terms of appointments. But some people have suggested that that is an issue that's, again, passed its sell-by date. And again, in the 2016 review, there were uh, very strong suggestions to change that, but it hasn't changed since. Mm. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and I'm talking to Mick Clifford of the Irish Examiner. Um, Mick, you mentioned uh, Dara O'Brien there, the minister who's responsible for introducing all these changes. Frequently, he's talked a lot about the reputation of onboard Planola. Why is the reputation of onboard Planola such a big deal? Because we all have to have confidence in the board, more so than most institutions. For example, if you have a house extension um, and, and, and somebody appeals against putting it up for any reason, we've often seen cases like that, both parties, both you and, for example, say your neighbour who, who might have an objection, have to have confidence that it's going to be a neutral decision, that you're able to walk away at the end, and, like perhaps from a court, and say, OK, fair enough, I lost, but I can see why. On, on a bigger level, we've seen huge objections to wind farms, for mm. instance. And again, people who are in the community, as well as the developer themselves, they both have to know that this is a process that's there. I may not agree with the outcome in the end, but I can see why exactly they made their decisions. And even though it didn't suit me, uh, I can have confidence that it was the right decision. And that's why it is really important that that confidence, that public confidence is retained. And it has been said by the minister and others, and it is very true, that confidence has been seriously damaged Mm. by everything that has come out in the last six months. Yeah, Mick, you mentioned wind farms there now. I, I sometimes think that when a lot of people think of onboard Planola, they're thinking about housing developments, but actually they are responsible for passing a lot of the huge infrastructural changes that we're going to need going forward, like wind farms. We saw two big companies pull out uh, recently, and one of them said it was because of the delays and the regulatory issues, and you know, onboard Planola are obviously part of that. So it's important that the government get it right if we're, if we're going to move forward at pace on building things like wind farms in the future, isn't it? It's very important. And not only that, Mandy, you talk about planning in that. I mean, you know, we, we've been hearing for a long time that we can be the Saudi Arabia for wind. Um, but as you say, two major companies pulled out and, and both actually, I think, w- was over regulatory or delays. And, you know, uh, Borplanol is going to have a huge input to the planning for these wind farms if they do get built. Mm. Yet there has been no increase in board members or, or in resources or size of the board over the last three or four years to take cognizance of that alone, not to mind the, the general workload. And again, you know, there's an element to being asleep at the wheel there, I think, you know. And what's your take on it, Mick, having looked at the proposals from government this week? Do you see anything changing quickly? Do you think this minister has the kind of confidence and support to actually make real changes that will speed up the processes? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think it will change. Um, how long it will take is the crucial thing. You know, and other people have suggested, is should there be a change of personnel? I mean, already the... the Deputy Chairman Paul Hyde resigned over issues that were personal to him. Mm. But people are talking about whether or not it can go forward with all the personnel who were there, none of whom, I should add, there's any suggestion did anything wrong, but purely from the point of view of they have overseen the scenario that it has got to this point and are they there for the correct people to take it out of it? And, and, And issues have been raised around that. The new... Controls that are being brought in are all, you know, there's common sense stuff. They should have been there before. The other thing that arises, though, that if somebody wants to get around issues like conflict of interest, you're you're relying hugely on their own integrity. And that's not leaving it down to self-policing or anything, but they make declarations. And unless you've somebody who's actually goes through all the declarations and, for example, scans the likes of a land register or whatever, you are going to have a scenario whereby it's possible 
that people will pull the wool over eyes. But if you have a culture in there that um, puts a huge emphasis on integrity and polices to the extent that it can, then there's no reason in the world why it shouldn't improve um, with the various changes that the minister is uh, hoping to bring in. Well, like you say, there's huge implications for uh, getting this agency right from a reputation point of view to have confidence in the system. And I'm sure we'll be returning to it again. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. Mick, thank you so much for your insights. That was Mick Clifford of the Irish Examiner. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, she started out in the Sun newspaper as a receptionist and now she's one of the UK's most respected political journalists. Marina Hyde joins us after the break to talk about her new book, What Just Happened. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, from Boris to Brexit, from Trump to Liz Truss, politics has provided much more entertainment than it really should have in recent years. A firm favourite for Irish readers is Marina Hyde. She's the political columnist of The Guardian and she joins us now to discuss her new book, What Just Happened. It's a collection of her columns since the Brexit referendum. But much more than that, her columns have become and described as a kind of coping mechanism for many people who are kind of struggling to process some of the more bizarre developments in recent years in politics, in sport and even in the world of celebrity. Marina, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks for joining us. Mandy, thanks so much for having me. Your introduction was making me laugh. (laughs) It has actually felt like we've been chained. If you've been covering British politics, it's felt like being chained to a lunatic for the last six years well, and every morning just waking up thinking what will the lunatic do now where will the lunatic take us today yeah I have to say you capture it very very well <laughs> and you're never short of material in the UK that's for sure the last couple of weeks of course have been no exception you, you could almost write a sequel straight away have you been I, surprised really by this yeah have you been surprised by the speed and the scale of the ineptitude it's not decreasing is it with this current batch uh, of well, politicians I really felt like when I bought the book out that I would be you know we would be operating from a position of calm and I could say remember these crazy six years of chaos I mean it's obviously not like that anymore but if anything it's worse yeah I I thought it I thought the potential for it to be even worse well first of all the rule of British politics over the last few prime ministers is that it always it can always get worse and each time it's got worse you think nothing could be as bad as the one you've got at the moment but I felt that it could get worse in this case because although Boris Johnson was sort of dreadful for all the reasons we know um the economics were becoming so bad, and obviously there was a huge cost of living crisis. And strangely enough, that was all we were talking about two weeks ago. But now the government has also layered on top of that, of that a financial crisis. So, yeah, I guess the lesson is it can always get worse. And I know, call me at Christmas. It'll be absolutely dreadful by then. I know that your style of writing, you don't actually like doing predictions. You prefer to stick to observing what's just happened. But in this case, when you did underestimate uh, Liz Truss, you were proven right. Yeah, well, if anything, I overestimated her while I was underestimating her. I mean, even I could not imagine that it would implode to this degree inside of, you know, essentially a fortnight since she went back to operational politics after the period of national mourning. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I'm sure there's more in the locker. Yes, I, I don't think we've seen the end of this by any manner of means. But look, let's just look at the book um, for a moment, uh, Marina. Your style of writing is particularly unique. Some would call it acerbic. Uh, it's very sarcastic. But it does actually capture always, I think, the kernel of the issue. And, and almost as an observer looking in, as opposed to somebody who's from inside the system. When did you know that politics was your lane of writing? Because it clearly is. 
Well, you know what? I, I used to write a celebrity column and I used to write a sports column as well. And I, it was funny enough, it was through those columns I found my voice more. But actually, whenever I came to write politics columns back in the day, I used to always try and be really sort of serious. I think I was co- co- um, sort of cocking lots of big guys who wrote like a proper kind of proper politics columns that I thought I ought to be copying. And once I thought, actually, you know what? I can't even win this game. I'm no longer playing this game. I'm just going to be myself. And once I started being trying to tell only jokes about politics almost i weirdly began to be able to be able to make much more serious points i can't really explain that but it's since sort of thinking right i'm just going to try and make this a a way of laughing at this as well as well as a way of looking at it i've been able to make much more serious points and it's and that and that's when i found the voice in that column however pretentious that sounds it just means Finding your voice in a column just means you finally start writing columns that aren't a disaster every week. Um, and so once I started doing that, really, it, it sort of started getting a following more and more, which is strange because I you know, tried doing it another way for a long time. Yeah, but it is an important uh, part of it all, finding your voice. Are you aware of the, the the sort of type of following you have that people actually look to this column to kind of cut through the abyss? And let's face it, we've got mountains and acres uh, of coverage. Uh, are you surprised by your own success? Oh, completely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I suppose the one thing that I think is, it's sort of related to what I was saying just then, which is I've tried to sort of make it accessible. Mm. You know, I try not to make it, you know, all my references really kind of obscure things that happened to the Liberal Party in 1982. I try to reference, I don't know, Taylor Swift songs or something that happened in a football game or something basically things that people actually like. Yeah. Because it seems to me that politics really annoyed a lot of people. And so if you kind of try and talk about it through the prism of things they do like, like, I don't know, movies, TV, other stuff like that, they might find it funny. And it's an easier way in. I think there's quite a lot of kind of gatekeeper writing about politics where people feel like, oh, God, I don't, you know, I don't know what, what all these words mean. I don't know, you know, what this obscure background is. And so I really felt that it was a time that, you wanted to make politics totally accessible. Mm. Funny enough, my favourite people who write to me are from sort of overseas, people who write to me from, I don't know, someone like Illinois and say, you know, I read your column everywhere. I don't know who any of the people are. I just enjoy the soap opera. We're a sort of telenovela for the world. Yeah, it certainly has become a soap opera. Um, I actually used to work in politics myself and I was a columnist, nowhere near your standard. But uh, sometimes when I get oh. disillusioned with, with Irish politicians just to make myself feel better, I read one of your columns. It's sort of like EastEnders for, for politicians. No matter how bad <laughs> it is here, it's just always that bit worse over there. I mean, it's getting more and more calamitous every week. Yeah. Look, just, just, I want to talk a little bit about some of the articles in the book because you start yeah. with um, a very tragic incident and something that was to, I suppose, um, really stop us all in our tracks. Can you just tell us why, what you started off with in the book and why you chose that article? Yes, the first article I chose came about, it's just about a week or 10 days before the referendum and it was the day after the murder of Joe Cox. And I chose that one because I knew people would be expecting the book to have lots of jokes and all sorts of things like that and things that perhaps the column has become known for. But I really wanted to remind people that all of these things are deadly serious. Everything is a high-stakes game and really terrible things can matter, can happen. And that all of this stuff matters and it's real and it has real-world implications. Um, so I chose that one particularly um, because I thought it was a good way of sort of saying, you know, really important things do happen and terrible things happen. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I always want to be on the side of people 
who feel that sort of politics has been done to, to them over the past few years and not in their name. Um, and I really do feel strong. You know, I want to be on the side of the reader and I want to be on the side of people who throw their hands up in the despair when they turn on the news. It doesn't matter what side of various debates you're on and various sides of politics. Everybody has felt, you know, quite despairing at different times over this last six years. And I suppose I want to articulate that. Yeah. And something that's weaved through all of the columns, I think, is this um, narrative and notion that reality TV has quite a lot to answer for. You feel very strongly about that, don't you? I do. I really feel that everyone was completely obsessed with reality TV in the 2000s. It was like this absolutely new TV genre and everyone watched it. And, you know, everyone was voting and pressing buttons. And Simon Cowell, actually, who was a sort of transatlantic god of all of that, thought, uh, oh, I would love to do a show on political referendums. I thought, oh, my God, of course, of course that guy got there first. He wanted to do a show based on referendums. He thought it would be really interesting. Donald Trump, the biggest reality star of that era, you know, used, used reality television to get himself all the way into the White House. Mm. And actually, I started noticing that politics itself had become a sort of reality show. First of all, it was sort of on all the time. Um, and there were all these kind of weird votes, meaningful votes, indicative votes, these kind of things that mattered but didn't matter all the time happening. And these characters, I mean, in the past years, you would never have had to get to know half of these MPs. You could leave the news alone and not take any notice of it for two months at a time, practically. And now suddenly these guys are on television more than Anton Deck. Mm. But not giving any joy to the nation. Yeah, well, perhaps at the same level of Anton Deck, it sprung uh, Boris Johnson uh, up from, uh, you know, his, 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 what we would have seen here in Ireland as, you know, he, he was a good columnist, he was entertaining, even as a Lord Mayor, but he became Prime Minister. You had a special, I suppose, place in your heart uh, that was dedicated to, to Boris Johnson. Can you just tell me how you think he his legacy uh, will be viewed and do you think there's any possibility of him returning? Well, I think the legacy, it's that it, the, the, what he ushered in was something I have never seen in my lifetime before. I mean, but we've spent hot, the first half of this year with a guy who has gone on television every night saying you have to keep these new laws that I personally am making because it's a matter of life or death. And when it had been revealed that he'd broken those laws, had all these parties, attended them and actually been given a police, you know, given the police record for it. He stood up and said, well, there's absolutely no reason I can't still be prime minister. I remember thinking, OK, this is just something in the past. This could never have happened. Mm. All these norms have been broken. That is the legacy, really, is that things that should have induced shame and caused politicians to quit. Now, you know, he's done some of the biggest ever and, and just carried on staying in post. And I think that he ushered in an era of much, much greater shamelessness to the point where, you know, people are talking about bringing him back. It's like, my goodness, no, he should have been put beyond use. They should have built, a, you know, one of those um, concrete domes over him like they did with the Chernobyl reactor and put Donald Trump in there too. But you know what? Both of them are potentially going to come back. Mm. Donald Trump may get the Republican nomination and people are already saying, well, the favourite to replace this person as Tory leader is Boris Johnson. It's like he hasn't unpacked the removal van yet. Yeah, it's... it's, it's just it's, these things... It, it, Yes, there are no consequences or not lasting consequences. People, you know, are, there's, and there's, it, it's just an era of shamelessness. I think that's probably what I would say his legacy is. And it takes a long time to shift. Once people have violated those norms, 
quite hard to put them all back together again. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to journalist and author Marina Hyde about her new book, What Just Happened. Marina, do you have a favourite piece of yours from the collection? I know probably when you looked back over them, you probably couldn't remember half the things you wrote that, and some of them are quite quite extraordinary. Right, but do you have a, a favourite piece yourself? I suppose sometimes I like the funny ones. But then there was one that I wrote that was totally, totally unfunny, which was when all the stories about Sarah Everard, who was mm. um, kidnapped and murdered by a serving Metropolitan Police officer, um, were beginning to come out and it was beginning to emerge what might have happened to her. I wrote, I was strangely, that the day before I was due to write my next column, I went to pick up one of my children um, from school and a man followed me down a street, quite a couple of streets, saying sort of terrible things, just sort of street harassment. And, you know, it's just so terrifying. But women know these realities all the time and it's happening all the time. So it's kind of like, what a coincidence because this big case was in the news at the time, but also not what not a coincidence, probably happening to hundreds of people around the UK, even at that moment. Anyway, I wrote a story, I wrote the column as just a sort of account of it happening to me to try and make it real. And I mean, I got, you know, so, I mean, it went completely viral. I had so many people writing. I mean, literally thousands of people alone just emailed me, emailed me their own stories, emailed me things, that, terrible things that happened to their wives 40 years ago. It was just it was this outpouring of things. So I, in a way, weirdly, although that's not the sort of always the sort of way I tend to, in general, write my columns, that one was really affecting. And I spent many, many months afterwards trying to reply to every single person because they'd offloaded such a huge amount of sort of pain and anger and whatever that I wanted to engage with every person. Yeah. It took I, a while. I don't mean to give the impression that the book is all funny because there are, you know, it's littered with very serious topics. And again, I'm, I'm reminded of the one that you wrote about Marcus Rashford and, and the impact that he had on a, an issue that was affecting society and juxtaposing that that the fact that the, the politicians couldn't deal with it in, in a way that he could. Um, is there somebody that you've been impressed by, though, within the political system at all? God, it's really hard. I'm, I, I, someone asked me this the other day, and I had to say, I do not see the big and interesting ideas coming within politics. And I think that's a real worry. Um, I see lots of really interesting ideas in um, the voluntary sector, like huge people making these huge logistical challenges to kind of feed people who can't be fed um, in in the UK um, and kind of making these amazing charities that somehow use, I don't know, leftover food and transport it all around. I, I think some of the logistical things that are being done in the voluntary sector, also people's ideas about how to get money directly to people globally who really need it, like actually giving people cash. There are all these interesting ideas it could really make a huge impact on people's lives. But I never feel at the moment that the big ideas are being discussed in politics. I don't feel people have, you know, it's almost, I don't think there are big ideas being mm. touted around at, at all at the moment. There are kind of catchphrases and things that aren't clearly making any impact on people's lives. Mm. You, you frequently sound very frustrated with the, the political <laughs> system. Um, this notion of a permi crisis, do you think that that's really the state that the UK are in where they're just stumbling from? You know, in, I don't want to sound like a cynic because in life I'm actually generally a really positive person. It's just that the raw material of the things I've had to cover over the last six years has not been great. Um, but it, it has been the case that the last six years have been like this. Like, you know, my youngest child is eight. We spend all our time saying to the children, you know, oh, you know, this isn't normal, this isn't normal about things they might see on the TV, on the news. And then after a while you think, 
Well, I mean, in a way, it is normal for them, isn't it? Because it's pretty much all they've ever known. That's all they've ever known. So, but like other really other countries like have have had to go through the pandemic. We had, all have the energy crisis now, the cost of living crisis. It just seems, yeah, that the UK seems uniquely, um, you know, um, pre. Well, the UK keeps mistaking itself for a superpower, mm. and that is that has been a big problem in its in its life. If it just realised that it wasn't a superpower and cut its cloth accordingly, it would have done much, much better over the last few years. Okay. Well, Marina, just a final word from you. What I know you don't like making predictions, but what is your <laughs> prediction for Liz Truss? She ended her speech this week with New Britain, New Era. A, a new, a worse era. I, I don't, I can't quite see the way out of this for her, I've got to say. But, you know, maybe she'll surprise us all. Maybe it she seems will. unlikely. Maybe she will. Okay, for now, we'll have to leave it there, though. That's Marina High, journalist from The Guardian and author of What Just Happened. Uh, Marina will be speaking with the equally fabulous Patrick Frayne uh, from the Irish Times at Liberty Hall in Dublin on the 18th of October. Marina, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much, Mandy. Take care. Thank you. Well, thanks for tuning in today. That's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on a Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so as always on email at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.